Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday, time for an episode from The Vault. This is part two of the series that uh, aired last Saturday. This is Because It Is My Heart, part two, originally from February 16th, 2023. Uh, Let's jump right in. A heart ate Loki. In the embers it lay, and half-cooked found he, the woman's heart. With child from the woman, Loki soon was. And thence among men came the monsters all. The sea, storm-driven, seeks heaven itself. O'er the earth it flows. The air grows sterile. Then follow the snows and the furious winds. For the gods are doomed, and the end is death. Then comes another, a greater than all. Though never I dare his name to speak. Few are they now that farther can see than the moment when Othan shall meet the wolf. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Ooh, uh, where did that poem come from, Rob? Is that one of those uh, Icelandic texts? Yeah, this is um, from the Lay of Hindla, a Norse poem from... a. a the 12th century or perhaps a little later. Uh, but in this, I know that the, the wording in, in this translation can maybe be a little confusing. Uh, a heart is not eating Loki. Loki, the, you know, the Norse trickster god, is consuming a heart. And after consuming that heart, he becomes with child. And those children are the monsters that plague humanity. I think this poem is easier to follow if you read it in Yoda voice because it follows Yoda syntax. <laughs> it like, does. A heart ate Loki. Yeah, you know. 
So in this poem, we see just one example of heart consumption in Norse mythology. Uh, there are other tales. There are tales of men eating the bloody hearts of slain dragons to gain their strength and courage. And this is a motif that we see continued in other European myths as well, such as that of the Germanic hero uh, Sigurd, who consumes the heart of the dragon Fafnir after slaying the monster. In one telling of that, I um, this this kind of goes back to episodes from last year that will be rerunning shortly. Uh, in one telling of this, after he has the dragon's heart, um, he cooks it over the fire to, and so he can eat it. And in doing so, he burns his hand on those delicious blood juices of the heart, and he instinctively licks his hand uh, because, oh, he's been burned. And the taste of the dragon's blood is said to give him the ability to understand all languages. Oh, this reminds me of the salmon of knowledge. Is that yeah. is that the comparison there? Yeah, that's that's uh, I think exactly the comparison. I don't remember this coming up, but there's a lot of a lot of those tales uh, are interconnected and in, in, in some of their themes and sometimes the details. Well, obviously, we are back with part two of our series on the removal of hearts, a uh, a topic that Rob, you have brilliantly chosen for the week of Valentine's Day. Because as much as we associate with uh, love, with the the giving around and the trading of symbolic heart imagery, uh, we we also do uh, you know love is a, is a lot about like getting your heart ripped out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and of course we love those metaphors, especially the week of Valentine's Day. Well, so in the previous episode, we ended up focusing on some uh, various traditions of heart removal in uh, in ancient Egyptian religion and in a Mesoamerican context. And today we're going to be starting off, in accordance with the poem you read, looking at some Norse traditions. That's right. Uh, and I found a really great book that I used in uh, putting this section together. It's called A History of the Heart by O.M. Hoistad of Telmark University College in Norway. The author here is of Norse descent and frequently mentions that in the book. Uh, and the book itself doesn't just deal with Norse traditions of the heart. He also touches on some of the examples we discussed in the last episode. Uh, but uh, he, he spends a lot of time discussing uh, the Norse idea of the heart and what, the, what they thought the heart did and kind of like the way that these ideas affected expectations of physiology. Okay. So it, as Hoistad uh, discusses, the Norse saw the heart as the seat of courage, which, uh, you know, that, that squares with a lot of other traditions as well and a lot of the way we, ways we talk about the heart metaphorically today. But uh, it was also seen as the seat of the mind. Now, obviously, we get into to Norse uh, culture, and there's, there's a lot in Norse culture beyond the warrior ethos and warrior culture. But Hoistad is pretty quick in this book to say, like, there was, there was a, a, a certain ruthless edge uh, to Norse culture as well. And we see that in the way they treated the heart. And what, once more in reading this, I was reminded again of that C.S. Lewis quote that we discussed in a previous episode uh, about the unloving heart, how it becomes this dark thing and an encased thing uh, that, is, uh, that is cold and, 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 and unflappable, but also, uh, you know, it's, it, it cuts you off from, from any like, legitimate feeling and connection. Uh, uh, yeah, his point in that quote being that love is by nature becoming vulnerable and you can defend yourself against becoming vulnerable, but that has its own consequences. Right. The Nor I don't know how the, uh, the Norse of old would have, have taken that, that quote. They would have been like, yeah, perhaps seal, seal that heart off. 
let it grow nice and cold because um, uh, because that basically is one of the attributes of the ideal Norse warrior heart. Uh, as Hoistad discusses in the book, in, in some accounts, it even seems to, yeah, to go beyond the merely metaphorical, and it seems to be seen as a biological reality, either the physiological result of bravery or its cause. So we're talking about a heart that is shriveled, that is cold, that is uh, that it that doesn't have a lot of blood in it, and it doesn't quiver. Mm. So, in the Fostbrother saga, this is the saga of the Foster brothers, or the saga of the Sworn brothers. This is a tale of the 11th century, uh, surviving in a trio of I think each one is incomplete 13th century manuscripts. Um, and it's uh, in this particular tale, it's said that following the death of a brave warrior named Torgir, uh, they take the warrior, they lay him out. He's like laid out on a, a stone or a table or something, and they open up his chest so that it could be seen what a brave man's heart truly looks like. Uh, because they were curious, is it is it like they say, is a brave, courageous man's heart, is it small, is it cold, is it shriveled? Is it like the heart of the Grinch before it grows three sizes? Mm-hmm. Is it, in fact, free of the blood that would cause it to, to quiver and, uh, and, and make one a coward? Um, or is it indeed, yeah, the small, firm, cold heart of a warrior? And in this account, supposedly, this is exactly what they find. They cut him open and they say, yes, it's all true. Like, look at this heart. Behold this shriveled, cold heart of a warrior. And uh, so Hoistad discusses this a bit. He, he references some other... Um, uh, accounts. There's the, uh, uh, one of a Norse warrior heart from the Helge saga. Uh, this is a quick quote from that quote. Fearless was he, bold for battle, bone hard his heart within his breast. Now he stresses in this case, this is more of a metaphor than anatomical commentary, uh, but he cites the work of a Norse historian named Klaus von C. Uh, on the idea that courage and cowardice can still be thought of in Norse thought to stem from, quote, purely anatomical relations. So to quote uh, Von C on this, quote, the important thing for the present argument is that the metaphors mentioned refer to the anatomical composition of the heart and that they see in its smallness, hardness, and absence of blood a cause of courage and not only a symptom of it. Mm, okay, so it is because your interior organs have certain properties that uh, that certain behaviors emerge in you. And so for a warrior who's very courageous and uh, and very strong in battle, it just happens to be because their heart is this icy little nugget. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and speaking of, uh, of, of yeah, icy nuggets, uh, he also points to the giant Rugni in Norse mythology, who is said to be the strongest of all the giants because he has a heart of literal stone. That Yeah, that'll do it. And he also gets into this uh, account of Rugni going up against Thor. And in, 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 so Rugni is really strong, but he knows that Thor also has a really tough heart and has these, you know, a magical, um, you know, God-given um, uh, hammer and so forth and some other magical items. So he doesn't want to go up a, into a direct battle against them. So they like build a giant and, but then they have to give it a heart, but no, no hearts are available. So they put a mare's heart in there and it doesn't work. Like it just throws off the whole construct. Hmm. But, uh, they're, they're and then they're, you know, <laughs> sorry, it's like you got the wrong voltage battery. Yeah, basically. Um, and, you know, and, and I think that's, in that we get back, you know, we're talking about some of the, the the interpretations of the heart and its role in the body and the person that are more magical and, and maybe to modern eyes and scientific understanding a little backwards. But at the same time, they do realize that there is something about the heart that uh, that powers everything. It is the center 
of the being, even if contrary to uh, this one leg of Norse thought, it has nothing to do with, with one's mind. Exactly. And as we talked about in the last episode, it is scientifically true that feedback from organs other than the brain contributes to the way the brain works. So uh, I think the way we put it last time is that, you know, the brain is the necessary organ for cognition. You couldn't think without it, but also it doesn't think in a vacuum. It's influenced by organs throughout the body. So the digestive system has influence on how the brain works, how you feel, how you think. And the cardiovascular system does as well, your heart and your lungs and all that. So I think there is, uh, for example, I mean, I think courage and cowardice would be a great example because that would involve the the fight or flight response, which, of course, is based in the nervous system, but then involves feedback loops from organs throughout the body. And it does indeed in, include uh, regulation of the circulatory and uh, and respiration systems. So in a way, you are sort of getting feedback from the heart when you're feeling fear. Yeah, yeah, and I and I and, and I I, th- I think we've discussed this before, but I think it would be a mistake to to think that the Norse had like a simplistic understanding of say um, the the human inner experience, because you also look at things like the idea that uh, of of Odin's crows, um, uh, what were their names, Hugin and Munin, I think. Um, I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing them, but um, we discussed this in the past. How e- each one has a different connotation. Uh, dealing with, uh, like, the mind and memories of Odin. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. So we're going to move on from most of the Norse examples here, but we are going to get into another European example of heart removal, one that I wasn't familiar with until basically researching these episodes. Right. So uh, we're going to talk about heart burial or the treatment of the heart in medieval and post-medieval Christian Europe. Uh, Now, a major source I was consulting on this was a chapter in a collection of archaeology essays. Uh, The book that it's from is called Body Parts and Bodies Whole that was uh, from Oxbow Books. Uh, That's an Oxford press uh, in 2010. And the editors were uh, Katerina Rebay Salisbury, Marie-Louise Stig Sorensen, and Jessica Hughes. And uh, the specific chapter in question is called Heart Burial in Medieval and Early Post-Medieval Central Europe by Estella weiss Krejci. And I looked her up. She's a scholar affiliated with the Austrian Academy of Sciences and the uh, Austrian Archaeological Institute. So between the introduction of Christianity in Europe and roughly the 19th century, the Usually near universal ideal for burial practices in Europe, in Christian Europe, was straightforward burial of the body whole with flesh intact. And uh, there are exceptions to this we're going to talk about, but that was basically the norm. And this could be connected in part to Christian beliefs about the afterlife, because uh, strangely today, I think if you ask most Christians what they believe happens after death, they will say that their immaterial soul separates from the body and goes off to live in heaven with God for eternity. And under this way of thinking, the body is not important. Uh, it's just it's just sort of the matter that the soul uses to live through, and the afterlife will not have a material basis. But this is not what the earliest Christians by and large believed, and this is not what's described in the earliest Christian texts. They instead speak of what theologians uh, often call a general resurrection, that at the, the end of the age, all of the dead, the righteous and the unrighteous, will be resurrected in bodily form to face judgment, though confusingly, the Apostle Paul writes that it will be a kind of changed bodily form because the present earthly flesh and bones that we have now are perishable and so they can't inherit the kingdom. And yet we will be raised in bodily form. So when our bodies are raised from the dead, we will be given new spiritual flesh, which is imperishable. Synthetic flesh? You could look at it that way. Okay. Uh, But anyway, so it was commonly understood by the dominant schools of early Christian theologians that the afterlife for believers would consist of some form of bodily resurrection, even if the body is changed somehow, thus giving rise to a desire for funeral practices that would keep the body relatively intact. And I think knowing that, I I, I would never have conceived that, that heart removal would be in the cards at all. Well, I think various procedures that in some way violate the wholeness or integrity of the body were controversial with certain people at certain times. Mm. 
and by the way, I want to say this whole thing about like the body, uh, this leads to a great digression on the implications for cannibalism in early Christian thought, because like, OK, what if you are saved, but then you are killed and eaten by a cannibal and your body becomes part of the body of the cannibal? What will happen at the resurrection? Or what if two cannibals eat a Christian and then together the two cannibals have a baby, <laughs> the baby will be made of parts of the Christian that the parents ate. So how will God retrieve the bits of the Christian from the baby's body and so forth? Like Thomas Aquinas participated in discussions about topics of this sort, and it's a hoot. But anyway, one interesting area we see the theological implications of uh, Europe shifting from mostly pagan to mostly Christian is in attitudes toward funeral practices, specifically toward cremation, um, because apart from the literal implications for the possibility of future resurrection, and there were different ideas about this, you know, some Christian theologians did not place as much importance on the integrity of the body. Uh, you know, some just didn't think it was a big deal. I think Augustine didn't think it was a big deal. Mm. But anyway, uh, cremation was not only a way of destroying the body, including in a way destroying the bones, but also just sort of it was it was culturally associated with paganism. It was something that the pagans did, and thus it was viewed as alien and unholy by Christian rulers. So, for example, in the 780s, uh, and I've seen two different years given for this, 785 and 789, I'm not sure why the difference or which one is correct. But sometime in the 780s, the Christian king Charlemagne, who would eventually style himself as the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, banned the practice of cremation of the dead as, uh, as practiced by the Saxons. And I was looking for a quote of this edict. I found it quoted in something called European Paganism, the Realities of Cult from Antiquity to the Middle Ages by Ken Dowden, uh, published in 2013. And this quotes it in translation as follows. If anyone causes the body of a dead man to be consumed by flame according to the right of the pagans and shall reduce its bones to ashes, he shall suffer capital punishment. So that's Harsh. Cre yeah. Cremating a friend or family member's body is punishable by death. So you get the idea of how strongly intact burial was uh, was linked to cultural and religious orthodoxy in much of Christian Europe. Yeah, to the point that it needs to be enforced, uh, apparently, with uh, with a death penalty. Um, yeah, you know, I guess drawing uh, just this this firm line that needs to be enforced uh, in the view of the time between us and them. But to come back to Weiss-Krejci's article, uh, despite intact burial being the norm, there were countercurrents of thinking and practice, both for uh, cultural and theological reasons. Like, again, there were some people who didn't think the intactness of the body was as important as others did, and uh, for purely practical reasons. For example, practical reasons would include space, real estate. Mm -hmm. There was the common practice of removal of bones from a burial place to be uh, to be taken away to a charnel house because, you know, there's just not enough space for all the bodies in the cemetery. Yeah, absolutely. And this is I mean, this is something you see in, in cultures around the world where there might be some sort of uh, predominant idea about how the dead should be buried. But you're going to then come up against basic uh, environmental constraints on that practice, as well as size constraints based on uh, various factors. Exactly. And I've got another uh, practical 
time and place, time, place, and manner (laughs) uh, uh, constraint on what can be done with the body. And that would be processing the body in some way to delay putrefaction. Uh, this was to to preserve the corpse for some reason, often either for public display or for transport across a long distance. And some of these forms of processing, okay, you can imagine some types of just like embalming to make the corpse last as long as possible. But sometimes this was a little more involved than that and could be thought to violate the the integrity of the body as a whole. Sometimes it involved removing things or even more extreme forms of processing. And these practices get weirder than you might imagine. So some of what we're talking about here is just disembowelment, removal of the internal organs from the abdominal cavity. Uh, Weiss-Krejci says that this this became common in the Frankish Empire in the 8th and 9th centuries. So you take the guts out or take all the internal organs out. That might have some kind of implication for uh, preserving the rest of the body uh, for, for a certain period of time to do something with. But in the 12th century, we see the rise of a practice called Mos Teutonicus, which translates to the German custom. What is this custom of the Germans? It was boiling the honored dead. Oh, wow. Sometimes a uh, here's an example of how it would be used. Sometimes a high ranking warrior or commander would die on a campaign in southern Europe or in the Holy Land far away from home. How are his retainers going to get the cadaver back to the crypt at the family estate? The the, the German-speaking crusaders often did not want to be buried away from home, you know, in the place where they were crusading. They wanted to be buried back at home. The body would obviously rot if it were transported intact or, you know, by cart or even by ship, uh, trying to take it all the way back to Germany or Austria or wherever the warrior came from. So people came up with the solution of making that warrior into a bone broth. Uh, you would have crusader stock. So imagine Conrad here dies in battle trying to sack a Muslim city in Syria and his servants or his kinsmen get his body and they boil it until the, the you can be boiled in water or in like vinegar or wine or I think sometimes in milk, but in some kind of liquid. And you boil it until the flesh starts to separate from the bones and then somehow you get the bones clean. I guess you, if you boil it long enough, just basically everything will float off or you could boil it for a period and then th- it might require some additional scraping with sharp instruments, but you would boil first to get the meat off and then you'd have clean hygienic bones that could be taken back to the estate in, in Europe for uh, deposition. Yeah, to your point about the stock, we're, we're really close to just to butchering here. This, this yeah. <laughs> And sometimes I've read, though this was not in this uh, book chapter I'm talking about, I read somewhere that sometimes the organs uh, from this were discarded and other times the organs in the flesh were preserved like you might preserve a meat, like by salting them uh, so that they could be transported somewhere, maybe to be buried separately. Wow. This seems like a whole area uh, that is is overdue for exploration in some sort of undead um, Templar fiction or something you know uh, um, you could have the, uh, the the skeletal reanimated remains of this uh, crusader and what does he want well he wants his salted organs back give me my body back in sausage form <laughs> it is sausage now uh, and how fitting for a german-speaking medieval noble to become a sausage in death <laughs> 
Uh, but anyway, so most Teutonicus, by I guess its advocates, was thought to avoid violating the prohibition against cremation, uh, specifically uh, Charlemagne's prohibition, uh, because, of course, it did not involve destruction of the bones. You would not be reducing mm-hmm. the bones to ashes. The bones would be intact. So I think that's good enough. You know, the body is intact enough to to be considered OK and not pagan. But some church officials still didn't like it, and it was ultimately forbidden as uh, disgusting and unfitting of <laughs> of uh, proper disposal of the dead by the Pope in 1299 and 1300. So this would have been Pope, uh, I was wondering how to say this, Boniface, uh, Boniface, I guess, Boniface VIII. Uh, I was looking for a translation of the original text of this edict as well. And so what I came across was part of a papal bull from 1300 called Bull de Sepulturis, which was quoted in a paper called The Popes and the History of Anatomy by James J. Walsh, uh, published in 1904 in the Medical Library and Historical Journal. And uh, the translation of the papal bull says, Persons cutting up the bodies of the dead, barbarously cooking them in order that the bones being separated from the flesh may be carried for burial into their own countries, are by the very fact excommunicated. Uh, oh, so I wow. think that means no ne- no further discussion necessary if you do it automatic excommunication. And uh, you know this does this sounds like a very top down edict right here uh, and obviously it is coming from the pope but you can imagine the scenario where out in the field out in the uh, where you're actually having to deal with uh, the the challenge of bringing bodies back across vast distances, you you might this might be a lot clearer situation. Like this body is going to rot, it is going to be foul. Uh, by the time you get it back, it is going to be a mess. Why don't we just do the messy part here uh, and uh, and speed it up a bit, and then bring the bones back clean? Yes, you can see the obvious practical advantages to this method, even though, I mean, uh, we are highlighting how it does seem extremely weird. And yeah, like, yeah. I'm not going to lie, it does. But like there, there, the advantages are clear in terms of like hygiene and so forth. The boiling in milk especially gives me pause. That's the one that, yeah. <laughs> that really sticks with me for some reason. Because I'm like, boiling in wine? Well, yeah, that just makes sense. But milk, mm, I don't know. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Walsh writes of more examples of uh, famous rulers who underwent most Teutonicus. He says, quote, the body of Frederick Barbarossa, I think that's uh, Frederick I, the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, who was drowned in the river Salef near Jerusalem, was one of the first to be treated thus. Afterwards, the remains of Louis IX of France and a number of his relatives who perished on the ill-fated crusade in Egypt were brought back to France in this fashion. And though this is a side issue, I did just want to quickly make note of it because the main point of this paper by Walsh is to refute an apparently long propagated claim that this papal bull from 1300, from Boniface VIII, uh, forbade uh, dissection for the purpose of anatomical research. So a lot of like early histories of science said, oh, mm. we could have learned so much through anatomical dissection if not for this papal bull. Walsh argues that it was actually neither intended uh, to have this purpose nor understood as such. And it was explicitly about boiling crusaders to bring their bones home from foreign lands. Hmm. And you know what? Coming back to that uh, that chapter by uh, Weiss Krejci, uh, she says that despite the prohibition in the bull, evisceration and excarnation by boiling continued. Some people, I guess, I, I don't know. I don't know if they didn't know about it or maybe they just ignored the Pope. I'm not sure. Um, though uh, she says defleshing by boiling eventually faded away mostly by the, uh, by the middle of the 15th century. Hmm. However, a related but different practice is the focus of this chapter, and that is heart burial or the separation of the heart from the body after death for burial, usually in a different place. Now, in some cases, various types of evisceration, including removal uh, and uh, separate treatment of the heart, as well as other internal organs, may have been practical in the same sense as the boiling of a crusader's bones. It was, in some cases, a, a practical solution to deal with the tricky situation of a death far away from home and the inevitable onset of decay in an era without freezers or modern embalming techniques. Uh, so I was looking for one uh, big example of this, and I came across what I thought was a great one, the story of King Henry I of England, which is interesting in a number of ways. Uh, my main source on this is uh, some materials from the, the Reading Museum in the UK, uh, and the reason for the location at the Reading Museum will become apparent in a minute. But tiny bit of background, Henry I, also known as Henry Beauclerk, which means good scholar, 
Well, he, he was a very ambitious guy. He was uh, kind of a Game of Thrones character. He was mm-hmm. the fourth son of William the Conqueror, originally without a, a domain or rulership of his own because he's the fourth son. But Henry became King of England after his eldest brother, William II, died in 1100. And then Henry made some moves. He leapfrogged over his older, his other older brother, Robert, to claim the English throne. And then he went out and seized control of the Duchy of Normandy in northern France from that same brother, Robert, in 1106. Wow, he's making moves. Yeah, yeah, making moves. I think he kept Robert in prison for the rest of his life or something. It was not not that nice on on that issue. Mm-hmm. But 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 one thing you may have read about Henry the First, notable for its like brutal pithiness, is the note about the cause of his death. And the note is that he died in 1135 at a hunting lodge in Lyon La Forêt in Normandy as a result of eating, quote, a surfeit of lampreys. <laughs> so it's just like that. It's like four perfect words. I, I could be wrong, but I think there is an episode of Horrible Histories that uh, <laughs> that, that touches on this. Uh, oh, okay. Well, I should look that up. Well, this that that may cover some of the same stuff I'm about to mention. By the way, lampreys, if you're not familiar, they're t- a type of I don't know, kind of wormy-looking, jawless fish, superficially mm-hmm. resembling eels. I think biologically they are not eels, but they're sometimes called eels. Uh, I think this death has been interpreted as maybe food poisoning, but it's not known for sure. As somehow it is uh, insistently a hilarious idea to me. <laughs> this conqueror king dies from just like eating eating lampreys until he died. Uh, but from the uh, from the Anglo-Saxon chronicles, this is quoted on the the website of the Museum of Reading. Quote. That very year, the king died in Normandy, the next day after the Feast of St. Andrew. Then this land immediately grew dark, because every man who could immediately robbed another. Then his son and his friends took and brought his body to England and buried it at Reading. Hmm. I like that note of everybody immediately committing crimes. I don't buy it. But who knows? Uh, okay, so but they want to bring his body back to Reading. That makes sense. But it's not quite as simple as that. Henry had given instructions uh, to take his body to Reading. He did want his body to be laid to rest within the abbey at Reading, where he had personally founded a sizable monastery. But that was all the way over across the English Channel. Reading is a, a town uh, a bit to the west of London, so it's inland as well. It's not like right on the coast. And apparently at the time of his death, weather was bad. There was a winter winter gale blowing, making travel across the Channel a treacherous proposition. And according to our chronicles, Henry started rotting and smelling bad very quickly. So instead of trying to take him to Reading as is, a different plan was followed. Henry's body was taken to the cathedral at Rouen, which was uh, nearby in Normandy, where it was embalmed in the following manner. He was vivisected, and his heart and intestines were removed and buried separately at a priory in France. So here's a case of heart removal and burial, but along with the intestines at a different place than the rest of the body. His brain and his eyes were also removed. Not sure what happened to them. Uh, somebody might be. I'm not sure. The rest of his flesh was, uh, I think, slashed open and rubbed with salt inside out as a preservative, and he was smeared with a kind of perfume. 
Finally, the body was wrapped in an ox hide that was sewn shut. Uh, and that part, the rest of that body, the, the salted body inside the ox hide, was taken back to the abbey at Reading for burial. But despite these precautions, Henry's retainers noticed during the journey back to England that the ox hides were leaking, quote, black fluid all over the place. Mm. It is gross. Oh, also, despite uh, the obvious caveats to be skeptical of uh, uh, accounts like this, the chroniclers at least tell us that the embalmer whose job it was to remove Henry's brain was so overpowered by the stench that he died. Uh, well, that, that that makes sense because that, that lines up with stuff we've t- discussed in the past regarding Egyptian mummification, where uh, one of the factors we have to take into account regarding the, uh, the removal and disposal of the brain is that that would have gone rancid really quickly and would, would not have been a pleasant uh, material to have to deal with. Well, it makes me wonder, like, what can you actually die from a stench? Obviously, you can die from inhaling things that are harmful to your body. Uh, but, like, could something actually smell so bad that in some way the smell is what kills you? That doesn't really seem to make sense, but I don't know. Hmm. Oh, well, I don't know. That would be an interesting topic to discuss in the future. I mean, there are certain things you can smell that will kill you, but right. it, it's not the, the merely the stench of the thing that makes it lethal. Right. Um, so it's, it's an yeah. yeah, open question. Okay. Yeah, maybe we'll come back to that one day. Anyway. Uh, So here we have a case in Henry I where there may have also been symbolic considerations involved, but there were clearly practical reasons for burying the heart and other organs separately from the rest of the body. And to come back to uh, this this article or this book chapter I was talking about, uh, whatever the reasons involved, the, the author here writes that this type of practice was fairly common for the upper classes in Western Europe starting at around the time of Henry's reign. Quote, The extraction of the inner organs and the separate burial of the heart and intestines was a hallmark of English and French aristocratic mortuary behavior from the 12th century onwards. It is worth noting that the English often quickly discarded the viscera close to the site of corpse treatment, whereas the French treated them with great respect. The English aristocracy generally favored a double interment, one for the body, the other for the heart. While French aristocracy often requested that the corpses be buried in three separate places, body, heart, and entrails. Hmm. Uh, Now, to end that quote, uh, but summarize some other comments, a a big focus of this chapter is about the practice of heart burial in Central Europe, so like in uh, mostly German-speaking areas of Europe, uh, where it was much less common than it was in France and England, though there were some examples. There's one specific exception, which is that it was a standing tradition of the Prince Bishops of Würzburg. Würzburg is a city in the German state of Bavaria. Uh, And these Prince Bishops uh, established a tradition with a three-part burial. The corpse would go off to Würzburg Cathedral. The intestines go to the castle church at, uh, of Marienburg, and the heart goes off to the monastery of Ebrock. And in these cases, it would have been probably for, uh, or not probably, almost certainly for mainly symbolic reasons rather than practical ones. And what were these symbolic reasons? Well, she writes in her conclusion that the primary symbolic purpose of the division of the corpse in both Central and Western Europe in the Middle Ages was a desire to, quote, duplicate the body. 
quote, by physically fragmenting corpses, high-ranking individuals could express loyalty to more than one site and comply with a range of political, religious, and social demands. Yeah, this makes sense. This is kind of like spreading it around. It's like, it's almost like a royal, say a royal official that has three parties on the same night. Uh, They're going to try to attend each of them for a little bit, right? Yeah, make an Uh, appearance at all three, yeah. Yeah, and so this is a similar thing, except with one's remains. Right, so at this time, the choice of where to be buried was often interpreted as an important sign of what was important to you. So if you're a duke and you want to show your loyalty to your duchy, but maybe you're also a member of a consecrated religious order and you want to show your loyalty to that uh, order's founding abbey, what can you do? Uh, or maybe you're a duke and you want to be in part at your duchy, but also you are on some brutal military campaign and you want to be buried in part, uh, you know, in the Holy Land where you're conquering cities. So what do you do? You duplicate your body, allowing it to be buried in both places. And one common way of doing that, especially in Western Europe, mainly England and France, was burying the body in one and the heart in the other. Uh, And a very common example here is English nobles having their hearts transported separately to or from the Holy Land. But the author also writes that in the post-medieval period, such as 17th century Catholic Europe, the symbolic significance of uh, separate heart burial becomes more complicated. Quote, the heart turns into something more than just a representative of a person. It becomes a political artifact, which was used to renew spirituality and promote new types of religious beliefs. So a heart in this case, uh, the way I'm understanding this is that it could be used more kind of like the relics of saints or like a a religious icon that was Mm. dedicated to maybe some kind of uh, Catholic counter-reformation movement that would, you know, people could look on it and meditate on it and it would, uh, or not the heart itself maybe, but, you know, like a marker of its deposition somewhere. And that would inspire them to feel certain religious feelings. Fascinating. Another interesting trend observed in this paper uh, that she mentions in the conclusion, especially in England, it seems like heart burial takes on a kind of fashionableness, like it's kind of cool. And like so many things that are perceived as cool over the years, this had to do in part with being a practice of the rich. And it goes like this. Transportation of a corpse is a marker of uh, what she calls social distinction. So, you know, whose corpse gets transported around after death, usually a powerful and wealthy person. Quote, procedures associated with transportation and delayed burial, such as evisceration and separate burial of the inner organs, eventually developed into symbols of high status, even when transport was not necessary. So maybe if earlier transportation of different parts of the body around was a sign of like, wow, you're rich enough to go like lead people to to fight in the Crusades, uh, and it was just a practical necessity there, maybe later on it doesn't have any of those practical implications, but it's just like, well, that's what rich, important, powerful people used to do, Mm. so maybe we should do that. Also, division of the corpse was more expensive than a regular burial. So if you are, say, rising up through the classes, like if you were somebody who was formerly more of a commoner, but you got appointed to a uh, to like an administrative position somewhere within the government, you could try to signal your your rising class status uh, with some kind of different funeral practice, maybe division of your body and deposition at different places. So it becomes a form of conspicuous consumption a way to show off the fact that you have money to create the appearance of higher social class or prestige. 
Mm, yeah, like I, I can afford to not only have one funeral, but three funerals. Yeah. Now, here's an interesting question. Why did division of the corpse, including heart burial, spread more quickly in medieval England, but uh, remain comparatively rare in Central Europe? Uh, she suggests here that it's because in England it was practiced by men, women, and children, whereas in medieval Central Europe, basically meaning like you know, the Holy Roman Empire area, it was mainly done to unmarried men without legitimate offspring. Hmm. So obviously that would make a big difference. Another big difference here comes back to what we were talking about in the, the past episode about the symbolism of the heart. There appear to be differences in the understanding of the unique symbolism in the heart in Western versus Central Europe. So example here, uh, there was a 12th century Austrian figure named Hadmar of Kuhnring, who, according to the author, is the only... Uh, known German speaker ever to ask for his heart to be transported back home from a crusade. Because remember, among German speakers, what what's the solution there? The German speakers like the most Teutonicus, the German custom, making the bone broth out of the crusader. Mm -hmm. Yeah, bring back the bones. But this guy's saying the heart. Right. That's what's hot. But uh, Hadmar here, he wanted his heart brought back. However, he did not ask for the heart alone. He wanted his heart and his right hand returned for burial. Why the hand? Well, another example cited earlier in the paper, uh, she mentions Prince Bishop Gottfried of Spitzenberg, who died in the Third Crusade in the year 1190. He asked not for his heart to be returned, but for his hand. Uh, and it got lost along the way. Whoops. Oh, man. But uh, she ends up writing, quote, it seems that for the English, the heart was important because it represented humanity's inner being. Among medieval German-speaking people, especially the prince bishops who represented both secular and religious powers, other body parts, such as bones or arms, could also fulfill that function. And I thought that was so interesting. It makes me wonder about the origin of this, this difference in, in metaphor and, and, uh, and in idiom. So if in medieval England, it's commonly understood that your heart, the organ that pumps blood, is the symbol of your soul. You know, it's the, the most important seat of your character and your integrity. But in German-speaking lands, it might just as well be your bones or your right hand that symbolize that core part of you. What linguistic or cultural or literary differences in those different language traditions might have caused this, you know? Yeah. I mean, on one level, all this is making me think of all the potential for various horror movies and, and so forth. But it also makes me think of some of those crawling hand movies, mm. like The Beast with Five Fingers, you know? Like, there is something about the hand that in the treatment given by these various horror films and all of them are kind of interconnected and ultimately stemming from some of the same source material. But there is this idea in them that the hand retains something of, of the original individual. And therefore you can, it's really not that much of a stretch for even a very heart centric um, or cardiocentric, uh, I'm not sure what you would, you would call this, uh, a very heart centric um, um, culture to realize that, yeah, you can easily imagine how, the hand could end up getting all of the attention instead because we can see examples of that just in our various uh, fictions and, and, and folk tellings. So anyway, if it comes down to it, most Teutonicus versus heart burial, which team are you on? <laughs> uh, but it's a bones or, or heart and hand. Yeah, boiling to take the bones home or taking the heart and the body different places. Ooh, well, I mean, I don't want to be an inconvenience. So I don't know, the heart seems like it might be a, 
a nice tidy way to go about things. Therefore, I don't know if, if it, you know, it's ultimately about what, what they feel comfortable with. If they would rather do the boiling, okay. I would maybe rather not be milk, uh, but, <laughs> but that's just me. And uh, obviously, I'm not going to really care all that much after, uh, after we've reached that point. I'm seeing visions of a gigantic instant pot. <laughs> that is not product integration. They did not, they did not no. ask us to, <laughs> to put that image in everyone's oh mind. My. That would be the best bit of Spawn ever. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, obviously, we'd love to hear from everyone else out there. Uh, which would you prefer? Uh, bones or, or heart and or hand? And if you choose bones, uh, what's the substance you you want to uh, hear your, your bones uh, stripped of their flesh in? Uh, I guess you can choose anything. You can choose wine. You can choose milk. You can choose Yahoo. I don't know. You know what's your favorite beverage? Yahoo. Uh, pour it up. Yeah. You know, the chocolate oh, beverage. Oh, Yoohoo. 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 Not Yahoo. Yoohoo. Yahoo is the website. Uh, yeah. Yoohoo is the chocolate beverage. Though, um, though there are other brands of the, of, of, of the chocolate beverage as well. But yeah, Yoohoo. Boiled and Yoohoo. I think you're on to something. Yeah. So, hey, we'd love to hear from everyone out there if you have thoughts on what we've discussed in these two episodes or if there are some other interesting ideas of how the heart is seen or treated either uh, physically uh, as a part of a funeral custom or a sacrificial custom in different cultures and different times in history or if there's something from a mythological level or even a purely fictional level that you'd like to bring up, uh, share it with us. We'd love to hear from you. I know just in putting this episode together, I ran across a few other monsters and creatures from various folklores and folk traditions. Uh, so I may have to come back to some of those maybe on future episodes of The Monster Fact. Reminder for everyone out there that uh, this is Stuff to Blow Your Mind. We're primarily a science podcast with our core episodes like this one on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And on Mondays, we do Listener Mail. On Wednesdays, we do Monster Factor Artifact. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film, such as uh, The Beast with Five Fingers. That's about a crawling hand. Or um, uh, Return of the Evil Dead, which, uh, uh, well, it's also Return of the, the, the Blind Dead, depending on which title you want to go in. That has to do with undead uh, Templars coming uh, back to life. Uh, so uh, some of those have touched on some of the ideas that we discussed in this episode. Mad Love, also about possessed hands. The soul oh, is in course, the hands yes. in that movie. Yeah, that's right. How could I forget Mad Love? All right. Well, uh, big thanks to our audio producer, JJ Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind dot com. Stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. 
Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 